Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. In 2023, the Writers Guild of America awarded its highest honor for television writing achievement, the Patty Chayefsky Laurel Award, to veteran TV writer, creator, and showrunner Yvette Lee Bowser. For more than three decades, Yvette has been telling stories via the medium of television, most recently showrunning Hulu's Unprisoned, starring Kerry Washington and Delroy Lindo. But back in 1993, Yvette made history as the first black woman to create her own primetime network television show, Living Single. In this episode, Yvette tells her own story, from growing up in various parts of Los Angeles before finding her way to Santa Monica High School and then Stanford. In addition to speaking about the profound influence of great educators at both schools, Yvette describes her approach to leading writers' rooms, collaborating with show creators, and why she and other writers are currently on strike. Yvette Lee Bowser on a history-making career in television. This is The Supporting Cast. Bowser, welcome to the supporting cast. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure, and I've known you for many years now, and know of you as a legend in the television writing area, <laughs> which is so <laughs> present uh, in everyone's mind at this very moment. But I'm I'm never had this in depth conversation, so I'm really happy to have it with you today. Should be fun. <laughs> let's see where it goes. <laughs> well, well, let's get to what is top of mind and in the moment now. You are, as you joked when we got on, you are unemployed at the moment, and that is by choice because you and other writers are striking. I guess the, the, the question to start off, why are you and other writers striking? The WGA is striking because we need to get fair wages and better working conditions in a rapidly changing TV landscape. And when you say rapidly changing, in my mind, and I'm not an expert on this, as television moved from kind of the cable, the networks, over to streaming, a different model started to take shape. And so writers didn't have these long 24 episode seasons to get kind of compensated for. Now it's the shorter seasons. And so the overall compensation for writers like you has not evolved along with the medium. Is that right? Exactly. The pay scale has, has dropped while the workload has increased. And that's, that's not how any work environment should work, right? It's, it's not how, how this equation should go. And also, it's not just the fewer number of episodes and the shorter amount of time writers are working. It's that we're being paid less and being asked to do much more work. And there's this separation between like the writing time and the production time. And so writers are not getting exposed to the process of production which is a problem. So that like the training and the pipeline from becoming a writer to becoming a legitimate experienced producer is fractured. It's really quite layered in terms of the number of issues. But, you know, obviously a fair wage, better treatment in the working environment. With the advent of streaming has come this thing called a mini room, where basically a room of writers will come together and generate significant amount of the creative work for the process like they'll kind of break the season yeah. and then those writers will be let go after some minimal, fairly minimal period of time, like 10 weeks. 
And then one or two people are left to do the bulk of the work to actually do the writing of the scripts. And then those two people are left to basically produce the show if two people are allowed. In some cases, it's one. So someone who's a showrunner and or show creator might work on a show for 10 months. So that you have this thing called span that really creates a thinning of how much you're being paid for the work because <laughs> wow. you're being paid episodically. But then you have this span that could span this kind of unlimited period of time. And we tried to deal with span in the last negotiation a little bit, but then there was the advent of these mini rooms where you get some support from a writing team, which is really important in the um, television process for most shows. I'll say there are a couple that shows that are anomalies in that one or two people like to write all six episodes or all eight episodes. Yeah. But most shows that have eight, 10, 12, 22 episodes have a writer's room that has anywhere from six to 16 people, depending on how many episodes. And so having fewer people do all of the work makes it an incredibly intense and taxing job. And also writers who are going from you know, working 10 weeks on one show and 10 weeks on another show and 20 weeks on another show creates kind of a gig economy out of something that used to be a real livable career. And now it's a gig. You're going from gig to gig to gig. Even writers who work on an episode, a show that's eight episodes, for example, they might get a 20-week contract or 24-week contract. What I'm seeing in these writers' rooms is about their contract is 20 weeks. Around week 17, you start to feel a certain anxiety in the room where people are wondering, like, where's the next job? But if they were compensated more for the job they were doing, given the impact that that particular show is going to have on the bottom line for the companies, then people could kind of relax and focus on the job that they had. Not that working on six or eight or 10 episodes a year is something that's just supposed to stay in you for an entire calendar year, but writers are having to string together three and four jobs to just make basic you know, expenses. And that's untenable. There's also the issue of AI. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't even know if we want to go there because there's so much there. Um, anything to say on AI? There's, I, there's not a machine that can replace me. That's what I can say. <laughs> I agree that. <laughs> and I, I don't believe that AI can replace humans in storytelling. I just, AI will never have heart. AI, I might argue that point, but AI will never have heart. Well, in kind of returning to the human element of this uh, versus mm -hmm. the AI element, you mentioned that there are certain people that are unable to fill up the pipeline, people who want to become showrunners because they're not really getting the experience that they used to get, right? If they were in the, if you think mm -hmm. of the Seinfelds or the offices or whatever, those those writing rooms, my understanding of it is people would be in, an, in a writer's room talking about the nature of the season and then different writers would be assigned episodes to write. And then the group would sort of talk about those episodes and talk about improving them. And so when a younger writer, let's say, doesn't have that experience of seeing an entire season all the way through, they aren't able to get the experience to become an Yvette Lee Bowser, to become a showrunner, a show creator. Right. Is that right? Not only are they not getting the experience of seeing an entire season through, in most cases now, which is very different from how it used to be, they're not getting the opportunity to see through an entire episode. And <laughs> wow. we're we're basically writing the episode from its inception all the way through post. When you're in the editing process, when you're actually cutting picture, that's considered the final rewrite because you can actually rearrange dialogue, rearrange scenes. You can change the plot. You can take, <laughs> you know, there's so much more that you can do there. And so people are just not getting that experience. And so 
it's really kind of weakening our union and, and our ability to advance into the future and, and have the skill set that we need to be the leaders that we need to be in telling the stories. Because it starts with the word, which is why writers become the showrunners. Right. <laughs> it's a really big job. And it's the job that encapsulates the entire process. It starts with the word, you know, it goes from the page to the stage. And that's not to say that there aren't other people who participate in that process or who add value to that process. They certainly do. But writers are showrunners for a reason, because they are really the, the vision keepers and the gatekeepers for the entire project. You know, the showrunner, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people tell me, oh, you know, you're, the, you know, that you're the reason I want to become a showrunner. I want to be a boss. And I'm like, well, do you know what showrunning is? Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, this just happened to me uh, yesterday on, on the picket line. Someone was saying that to me and they said, I want to be a boss and you seem to do it with such style and, and dignity. And I was saying, thank you. And she's like, I really just want to be a boss like you. Like, you're just so boss. And I was like, I just want you to be clear that being a boss does not mean that you get to be bossy and just boss people around. When you are the boss, when you are the showrunner, your job is to inspire every single person on that production every day. Inspire them so that they want to fuel your vision. So they want to bring their very best to make the thing that you all signed up to make. It's like when you meet with people, you want to get a gauge on how invested they are in the story that you're trying to tell. And then it's your job to keep them invested and to get them to lend their brilliance to it in the very best way they can each and every day. I mean, it's, it's so much more. I mean, honestly, for me, it really is about inspiring people more than telling them what to do. And then there's the accountability factor that people don't always think about. You know, the, the showrunner is where the buck stops. It's a really, really big job. It's like, it's an amazing job. It's a wonderful job. It's a fulfilling job, but it's also a very careful what you wish for kind of job. Yeah, because don't you have a boss when you're the showrunner, which is generally the network or the streaming service. And so aren't you also trying to negotiate things about the show and protect the creativity and the vision of the show to people above you and trying to get their buy-in, not absolutely. just the people who are below you, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they're paying for it. So <laughs> right. The, the, <laughs> the, you have to deal with the buyer, but also for writers who aren't getting that experience or exposure to it, it's harder to then navigate the process of negotiating with the buyer, whether it's about your vision, an actor choice, directors, where you're using your dollars, all of those things. If you're just not around it, it's these are not skills that you get through osmosis. You get them through exposure and experience. And that's why I'm saying like the pipeline for show running and the level of accountability that we have as writers who become showrunners and executive producers is thinning as a result of this new structure. And you said it all starts with the written word, which I think is true. As did the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> as did the Bible. You could need to showrun that one someday, uh, Yvette. Um, uh, as a showrunner, as I understand it, you're not only the head writer. You know, I've been told it's described as you're also the HR person, you're also the budget manager, you're also all of these other kind of administrative functions that exactly. sit aside from the particular written word or the creativity of the show. How have you, right. and I know you started this when you were very young, so you've, you've had a long time, but how do you kind of balance those two in your mind? And how did you learn both the, the business, the administrative side alongside the creative side? Well, you're right. There is this uh, managing upward and managing downward that you do <laughs> yeah. as the showrunner. Yeah. I was very fortunate to come up in network television. 
where I worked on, you know, 22 to 27. And one season, I actually did 36 episodes of television. Wow. You know, in my very early days, I came up on a different world. And I had five years there where I was able to witness the good, the bad, and the ugly in various facets of production and make decisions about how I would uh, manage things if given the same opportunity. But again, just being there in the trenches from the inception of the story to the execution of the story on the page to then to the stage and then also being with it in post. It was literally, again, just all that hands-on experience over and over and over again, and then gaining more and more responsibility over time as I became a producer. Now we have writers who are becoming producers, then supervising producers, co-executive producers, and executive producers who have never done anything other than sit in the writer's room. Right. Also, just one point of clarification, the showrunner is not always the head writer. In the last four shows that I've helped launch, from Blackish to Dear White People, Run the World, and Unprisoned, I'm not the creator of any of those shows. I have been a showrunner on Dear White People, Run the World, and Unprisoned. So I helped to develop those shows and lay out those early seasons of those shows and launch those shows as the showrunner, working with less experienced writers who hadn't run shows before. On Dear White People, Justin Simeon was coming from the film world and has not, had never done TV. And on Run the World, the creator had not worked in scripted television before. And then on Unprisoned uh, with Tracy McMillan, she was a television veteran of maybe 15, 16 years, but had not run a show and had not served in a kind of a supervisory capacity at the producer level. So there were some aspects of it that made the network feel like we would like to have a person who's done it before. So that is a, a natural segue, I think, to Unprisoned and the role of you as a showrunner when you're working with someone else's creative vision or someone else who sort of mm -hmm. creates the content of the show. You can speak about it specifically with Unprisoned, but also in general, what's the skill set and approach that you think works well when you're the one that kind of, it's not your creative vision, but you're the one that knows how to run a show. You've done it before. Right. You understand all the challenges that come with that. How do you work with that creative leader? but also with a cast and a crew of people that, that need to get something done. Right. I find the best way that it works is that it's their gut and my guidance. Mm. And we talk very intimately about what their North Star is, what their vision is, and my job in terms of the creative, keeping them true to what they say they set out to do. They want you know, What they say it is they want to achieve with the show. And so when we're breaking story, the show creator is the person who is really running the room and sharing their vision. And I'm listening more than I'm chiming in. <laughs> and can you just... give an example? I've heard a lot of people say that the, use the term breaking story. Uh, mm -hmm. What does that mean practically? What's an example of breaking story? Basically, we're sitting around a table just ideating. There's some journey that we want to take the characters on. And we're sitting around talking about what are the best twists and turns to add to the story so that we get the intended result. So we as a staff kind of sit around a table or on a Zoom now, and uh, yeah. we throw out ideas. It often start with an anecdote from the show creator or someone else in the room and, you know, or a topic that we all feel is interesting to explore. And then we'll talk about relevant things in our lives. I'm often whether I'm running the show or I'm the head writer, I'm often encouraging people to basically share their personal anecdotes. I love that kind of story the most. I mean, I, you know, that comes from real human experience. 
Um, And sometimes it's really hilarious and sometimes it's really painful, but it always seems to get us to a place where we're having this really rich layered conversation that then kind of creates the path that we know we should go down. And a lot of that is very, very intuitive. The story kind of finds a way (laughs) to tell itself after everyone chimes in and you have all of these really interesting and varied points of view. And that's what the breaking process is when you're doing it in a group. I mean, it's a little different when you're just a, you know, writing by yourself and you're trying to come up with, you know, a pilot story or an, or just an episode. In that case, you're actually having a conversation with yourself. Certainly I am with the characters, like the characters actually speak to me. And mm-hmm. in the story breaking room, you really want the show creator to share as much of what is in their brain trust with the room. And then over time, the room starts to be able to echo and emulate Mm. the same kinds of thoughts, I guess is the way they think AI can do it, but it's not because we're all human. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that that goes to the the gut and guidance piece, right? That you just said is that the creator is probably going, you know, this is what I really feel should happen with these two characters. The end of this episode, they started by hating each other. Now they love each other, whatever it is. And that it's the guidance of you and other writers to kind of how, okay, how do we get there? How do we put them through some sort of obstacle course to get them to fall in love at the end? Exactly, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to approach breaking story. You know, there's like you know, the, the classical hero's journey. <laughs> and then there's kind of just the anti-structure. So it, it varies. It varies yeah. from room to room. But the way I like to break story is to have someone has this nugget. Something is just burning inside them that they share and they want to explore an area. And we all pitch in our various anecdotes and what it is that we like about it and twists and turns that excite us and scare us in equal doses. And that's usually where we land. Like, are we really going to do that? Are we really going to take that turn? I don't know. Yes, we should, because no one will expect that. Or let's do this expected thing here and then completely violate their expectations in the third act. Yeah. You know, like, it's it's really fun. It's really fun. It's really organic. And it, it unfolds in different ways in different rooms, depending on the personalities that you've cast in the room. Hiring a writing staff is kind of like casting a show because you're casting different life experiences and different perspectives if you're, if you're doing it well. I mean, sometimes you hire someone who has a very, very similar life experience to yours, but ideally you have people who have varied perspectives so that more of the human condition is reflected in the room and therefore reflected in the show. Um, And therefore will resonate ideally with a higher number of of audience members as well. Exactly. Exactly. I I mean, I think one of the reasons why I was asked to run on prison is because although my father never went to prison, my father was a career criminal (laughs) uh, who never got caught. And um, I have some emotional proximity to the the subject matter um, and definitely spent many years separated from my father and then trying to find a way back. So you don't have to live an exact experience to be able to write it. I mean, that's where the creativity and imagination comes in. But at the core of every story, there's something very human and very relatable, no matter where you're from, what color, creed, gender you are. There's a humanness to well-told stories that can only be generated by humans and the most creative of us all, the writers. The writers. Um, so I want to get to your story and, and you growing up in just a moment, but because we're on the subject of Unprisoned, 
I want to give you a chance to tell people who have never seen the show about the show. Can you give us a basic overview of what the show is? It's on Hulu. It's with Kerry Washington and Delroy Lindo. I know that. Yes. And why was it important for you? Why did you want to be involved in telling the story? Well, I really wanted to be involved because I have some emotional proximity to the story. Yeah. And I believe that there are a lot of people living lives like this that are not seeing themselves reflected in the television landscape. And basically, it's a father-daughter love story. And it's a story of a family trying to heal after being separated for decades as a result of mass incarceration, which is very uniquely uh, you know, American uh, dynamic. But as a family, they're not only trying to find ways to love each other in the ways that they need to be loved, they're also learning to love themselves. And become in doing so, they're becoming unprisoned. <laughs> ah. And over 80 million families are impacted by mass incarceration, you know, or have family member that has done some time. And so we're letting them know that they're not alone and that they too have a voice and kind of normalizing that experience of what it is to have someone go away for many, many years and then have to kind of reacclimate themselves into a family with members, some of whom have never met this person before. It's a much more common dynamic than, than you would know. I mean, a lot of times on our press tour, our actors and the show creator would run into interviewers who had been incarcerated or had family members who had been incarcerated. It was like stunning, really. It was kind of staggering the number of people who have been impacted by mass incarceration and have had similar dynamics or have either been in the foster care system or have been in prison. And probably important to capture both of those perspectives as well, the perspective of mm-hmm. the person who has been incarcerated, kind of re-entering the, the real world, and then the, the family member who's then receiving that family member and trying to kind of react to that because they've been living their own lives this whole time as well. Right. Like Delroy Lindo's characters, it's named Edwin. And you know, my father was very much like Edwin. So I kind of know this character inside and out. And you know, <laughs> my dad was this very smart, charming, charismatic guy who made a lot of questionable choices that took him away from his family. And although he always had the nerve to joke that he was too smart to get caught um, and to go to jail, he definitely made a lot of decisions that he thought were in the best interest of his family, but they were not. Well, that's a good segue to your upbringing, actually, Yvette. So from my understanding, you sort of were born on the East Coast, but raised on the West Coast. Can you tell me a little bit about that and about both your mom and your dad? I was born in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. And when I was five, my parents took me on a cross-country trip to California. And I sang, do you know the way to San Jose the entire way, as they told <laughs> me the story. And I came to find out not all that long ago that my family was actually on the run. Like when I say not that long ago, I mean like five or six months ago, I discovered that. Oh my My father had actually told me this story at some point and I thought he was being hyperbolic, but I got some information recently that helped me connect some dots. And I realized that when my dad and my mom moved to California in 1970, he was on the run from not the law, but from some guys who were trying to eliminate some people who had been involved in a situation (laughs) and he was one of those people. Um, And I just realized that all these years later, all these decades later. So it's kind of, (laughs) but there were definitely some very sketchy and harrowing events in my life and my childhood. You know, I was housing insecure. Once my dad separated from my mom, you know, my mom and I lived in 10 different places in the span of four years. And I've used all of that as fuel for my storytelling. So being housing insecure, being the product of an interracial 
marriage, having, um, you know, a white mom, a black dad, and then a Japanese stepfather, you know, <laughs> my mom, my, <laughs> my mom and my stepdad and I walking down the street, we didn't have one match set. We were like the UN like, <laughs> French, Irish, German woman who's like five, nine, this five foot six Japanese Okinawan Hawaiian stepdad of mine. And then myself, my little Brown self. So it was a really unique set of emotional baggage and cultural baggage to, uh, carry through adolescence but it was cool it was it was kind of cool I mean it was challenging but it was cool and and I think I'm that much more interesting and a richer storyteller as a result of that and those challenges those hurdles that I had to overcome yeah and you talked about kind of your dad's role and you learning more about your dad's identity I think back then can you talk a little bit about your mom and your mom's influence on you particularly with the career that you now have undertaken Right. Well, my mom was, I mean, she was all about education. And my mom is the reason that I became a voracious reader and lover of storytelling at a very young age, you know, for show and tell kids would bring in, you know, like a toy or a game or something from home. I would write a puppet show, like Hmm. six, seven years old, I was (laughs) bring in puppets and do a whole thing. And uh, I know a lot of kids thought I was strange. Um, (laughs) But also then in high school, I loved words and diving into the dictionary and the etymology of words and linguistics. So just language and storytelling has always been a part of my journey as a result of who my mother is and the things that she encouraged and nurtured in me. And I I have the deepest appreciation for all of that. Now let's talk a little bit about your schooling. Uh, Can you talk a bit about your elementary school, your high school, and whether there are any teachers, educators that made a particular impact on you? Absolutely. Well, I went to public school all the way up until college where I went to private university. I went to Stanford University, but I started out, I think I went to six different elementary schools and I landed in Santa Monica with an amazing uh, sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Timbrake, who was also a lover of stories and, and, and great literature. And she really, really, I think, ignited that flame in me for telling stories and being creative and stretching out into that area and starting to think about how I might do something next level with my stories, which then led to me pursuing journalism in high school, because it was just another way of telling stories. And there I also had an amazing teacher, Mr. Sherwood, who ran the school newspaper. So I was an editor on the school newspaper. And then I also had an amazing AP US history teacher, Mr. Carey, who was the one Black teacher I had in high school. And it was just kind of cool to see someone like that in that role. Like, you know, like all of my teachers up until that point had been mostly female and mostly white. And so to see this man in this kind of unique role and to have the students be so responsive to him was really emboldening like it really kind of opened up my world to the fact that I could do anything like he was doing something that didn't seem like something a black man would be doing at the time and so it just really kind of expanded my way of thinking it's so interesting because I think sometimes people think that your inspirations kind of have to be a one-to-one like oh I see a director maybe that person can inspire me to direct, or I see a history teacher can inspire me to become a history teacher. Yeah. He just he just really opened up my mind to a way of thinking about just doing something different, something that wasn't expected. Although when I went to college, <laughs> 
I went to college mainly because I was going to become a lawyer and I became a comedy writer. <laughs> <laughs> but I think because that seed was planted that I don't have to necessarily pursue this path that others seem to be putting me on, that there was maybe more that I could explore, that I could do something that was unexpected. I think that seed was planted in, by Mr. Carey. And also going back to Mr. Carey, the thing about him that I think was most resonant was the idea that people always remember how you made them feel. He made every student feel like they were an integral part of the learning experience and that they could to create their own history. I know, and I'm saying that out loud right now, and I'm kind of putting it together that way for the first time in my own mind. I'm getting kind of emotional. He was so inspiring. I'm having a revelation. That's <laughs> all right. No, but he did. I'm now remembering. He did tell us, like, you don't have to just learn about history. You too can be history. And I don't do this kind of stuff that often. Um, but I have made history and I don't often take the time to sit and savor that. Um, but he planted that seed and I'm just now being hit with that revelation. So it's very emotional. <laughs> did you stay in touch with him at all after high school? Does he know that you made history? I did. Um, I did. Um, in fact, it's very interestingly, my high school boyfriend remained good friends with him. With, with Mr. Carey. And so I feel like I was in contact with him at least through college. So, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know if he's tracked who, <laughs> yeah, who made history, who didn't, where I am, what I'm doing or any of those things. But I don't, like I said, I don't often reflect on the history that I've made, but I do remember that was something that was very inspiring. It wasn't just oh, learn about these people in the past who did these things. Like, these are the things that were driving them. These were the circumstances at the time. Think about it, how it relates to you in the present and how it might be fuel for you in the future. Wow. Wow. <laughs> A part of what this series is about, Yvette, is uh, the acknowledgement <laughs> of great teachers in our lives and how much they mean to us. So Now I got to go look up Mr. Carey and see where he is. That's an example. <laughs> I had a, I had a moment. I had a moment of catharsis while doing a podcast. <laughs> Mr. Carey, you gave me so much more, although I was giving him credit for doing so much. And I'm realizing that little path was, that little mind path was already being uh, paved. He was very much a Ted Walsh type, I'm going to say. Ah, yeah. Ted Walsh was, I mean, just a phenomenal, phenomenal human a spirit and educator. He was just so many things to so many people. And we, of course, we need more educators like him. Yeah. I'm blessed to have had a handful in my life as I was coming up. And as we, you were coming up, obviously you were creating puppet shows and you were learning to write as a sixth grader and you were working on the school newspaper. And were you watching television as a, as a young kid? Were there shows that were inspiring you? I was watching all kinds of television. Okay. I was a latchkey kid. So yep. Laverne and Shirley were my babysitters. <laughs> <laughs> The Happy Days, The Fonz, The Facts of Life, all of those shows. Mork and Mindy, I grew up on so much television. I love Lucy. You know, I'll be honest, Laverne and Shirley showed me the kind of sisterhood I wanted to have as an adult. Sisterhood is so central to pretty much everything I've ever 
done in my life and also everything I've created and magnified or amplified through the shows that I've worked on. Your production company is called Sister Lee Productions. Sister Lee, yes. Yeah. Because that sisterly spirit is part of me. Well, first of all, I am my mother and father's only child together. I have half siblings from my father's first marriage, but I grew up an only child and I always wanted a sibling. And so the kinds of relationships that I cultivated with my female friends in particular were very tight like glue. <laughs> True blue, tight like glue. Just a little plug, living single, lyrics to the theme song. That's just always who I've been. So when I created my very first show, Living Single, that was an integral part of that show, that sisterhood. You don't have to be blood related to be true and loyal and there through thick and thin. And I felt like that was just not only an authentic way to project myself into the world, but to also plant seeds of enviable relationships that we should all have in our lives, whether they're male or female, just friendships, just enviable friendships friendships as an ingredient in chosen family. You can create your own family at any age, which is why I think a lot of people do view Living Single as a blueprint for that kind of show, for friends as chosen family. It really was the first. Including the show Friends. <laughs> yes, Living Single came before Friends. That's right. That's right. And I want to get to Living Single. It Friends. Um, the Stanford experience. I know you had a professor there yes. that was meaningful to you. And I also want to kind of learn about you thought you were going to go into law. You ended up mm -hmm. going into entertainment and writing. Kind of how did that evolution take place for you? Well, as I said, I've always been a storyteller. <laughs> I started out very young, writing plays, writing commercials for products that didn't exist, just anything. So it was definitely destiny for me to grow up to be a scribe of some sort. I did have this amazing professor at Stanford, Ron Rebholtz, who was a Shakespearean expert, who really kind of like just broke down the beauty and the depth and the humor of Shakespeare that just, again, I just wanted to be able to make people feel the way that work made them feel. I mean, it's the same way I feel about the great authors that, you know, my mom and some of the other educators in my life turned me on to. I mean, like Toni Morrison, Terry McMillan, Alice Walker, like, I just really wanted to help people feel the way their literature made me feel when I dove into it, just getting lost into it, just connecting with it and feeling a reflection of myself. And just going back to Ron Repholtz, he actually helped me see myself, someone who does not look like a typical Shakespearean character, <laughs> personality, feel like these were the kinds of stories and dynamics that I too could be part of, that could be relevant to my life. Just again, taking it from just something on the page and making it something that you could make part of your life the same way that Paul Carey did. You know, like these are just not people that we're reading about. These are actual humans and these are actual characters that are just like us, just living in different times and different circumstances. But a lot of the human dynamics and interplay are the same. So what moves can we make as humans right now? to change our circumstance or to improve the human condition as we evolve. Well, now let's get to the notion of, of making history because shortly after graduating Stanford, you created the show Living Single. It was a primetime network show. You're the first ever black woman to create your own network primetime television show. And you're in your 20s at the time. 27. 27. 
So how do how does that happen? Yeah, I would say honestly, having a professor help me make Shakespeare seem so relevant to my present day African American female life allowed me to think about how telling my own stories could be relevant to people other than myself. Mm. And I think that was one of the reasons why I decided I should pursue a career in television and derail myself from my very uh, standard path of going to law school. And of course, when I told my mom that I wanted to pursue comedy writing instead of going to law school, she thought that was the funniest thing she ever heard. She's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) You use scholarship money and grants, and I used four different credit cards to finance Stanford University, and you want to do what? But she eventually acquiesced. And I was able to become a writer's apprentice on A Different World, which was the spinoff of The Cosby Show. And it was the first season. And I was able to kind of sit in the writer's room and not have a tremendous amount of responsibility, but really observe what that process was, that breaking story process. And when the room got quiet, I used that as my cue to chime in. What about this? What about that? And using some of my present day experience, like it was a show about young people in college. I had just left that environment. (laughs) And also at Stanford, although it was a predominantly white institution, what we now refer to as PWIs, we had a very tight knit group of black students at Stanford. We represented like 10% of the population, but we were incredibly cohesive group and a very socially and politically conscious group. And so I was able to lend a lot of that really relevant current experience to a different world. And it's just one of those things where when you think you have something to say and then someone affirms that what you're saying has value because it ends up in the show, you just keep giving and just creating and feeling more confident and even less afraid to fall on your face by pitching something that doesn't get used. You just start building a muscle and a boldness and honing your craft and your creativity. And so I was there for five years and I went from apprentice to producer. I even brought in some other apprentices like Gina Prince Bythewood, another (laughs) guest on the supporting cast. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So Gina and Reggie were two people that I mentored while I was there. And so I left that very nurturing environment of a different world. And I went onto another show that wasn't the cozy female and minority friendly environment that was a different world. And I realized that Hollywood was going to be less kind to me in general, but not being one to suffer fools. I thought, oh gosh, I better find myself in a situation where I can kind of control the tone and the tempo, which meant that I needed to be very deliberate about creating my own show so that I could create my own work environment. And that was really Mm. the impetus Hmm. for me pursuing development so aggressively that very next year, basically the fifth year into my career. And that's when I developed Living Single. And (laughs) it worked out um, because there were some circumstances. Like I was really dealing with racism and misogyny on a very regular basis. And there was no way that my creativity was going to flourish. I was going to like end up going back to law school or going into banking or anything else, but I was not going to subject myself to kind of what I felt was pretty regular creative bludgeoning, like really just 
a stomping out of my creative fire. And so I not only wanted to create a television show, but I wanted to create an environment where people like myself who represented, you know, marginalized communities could feel valued in the writer's room every single day and not live in fear that they were going to lose their seat at the table. So I created my own table and all the seats <laughs> and created a, you know, a pretty cool show in Living Single. Very cool show that I watched and I was not in the key demo, I'm sure at that point. Um, but I remember it came on right after a big show. Can you talk about kind of where it was in the lineup? Because I remember watching it. It came on after Martin. After Martin. That's when it right. first launched, it came on after Married with Children, the very first season. But the second season it was on, it was Martin Living Single and New York Undercover. That was the lineup right. on Thursday night. Yeah. And that was, yeah. So that was, it was, it was pretty cool. I mean, it's like a nice piece of, uh, history, a nice piece of nostalgia that I was really blessed to be part of. You know, like I said, I wanted to create not only an authentic reflection of me and my friends, but I wanted to and create a an environment <laughs> and a sisterhood. Exactly. Yeah. But I wanted to create an environment where like-minded people could be nurtured and grow up and become storytellers in their own right and tell their own stories. And a lot of them are doing just that. And that is, um, as much as living single is part of my legacy, so is uh, mentoring. Well, you talked about having kind of a negative experience and feeling like your creativity was sort of stomped down at, at other experiences. What's your leadership style when you are working with young writers who probably at first are a little nervous to suggest an idea? Because what if people don't like it? And if people don't like these two ideas, well, I shouldn't just do the third because they're not going to like that. But I'm sure there's some insecurity that comes into any young writer's mind when they're in a writer's room, when they're interacting with someone like you who's had all the experience and success you've had. What's your approach? My approach, again, at, at its foundation, my approach is to encourage and inspire each and every person who's part of the writer's room and or the production to do their very best. And, you know, oftentimes if I'll see a, um, a young writer laying in the cut, as we call it, in the room where the room is just like bursting with ideas and lots of people, particularly people with more experience, are just like talking. And sometimes they're talking over the less experienced writers. Right. I will not single them out, but really invite them into the conversation by saying, what do you think? Or, oh, I know you used to do X, Y, or Z. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Where I literally invite them into the conversation one at a time. And I'll, I'll do that whether I'm running the show or not. You know, I've worked on shows where I was consulting and I could tell, by the way, that the showrunner was reacting, that they weren't getting what they wanted out of a certain person in the room. And I would bring that person into the conversation. Literally, it's like, it's like opening doors, opening windows, opening <laughs> any point of entry into the conversation for those who are struggling to find their way, just really bringing people along. I mean, like you can't, here's the truth of it. You can't get uh, blood from a stone. So sometimes it's not the right fit for people and you do have to part ways or find new ways to get them engaged in the process. But I'm a nurturer by nature. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a mother by nature. I'm like, I was kind of the mother of my friend group, which is what Khadijah represents in Living Single. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of bring all of that maternal energy to the show running and writing process. And it works very effectively for me. You know, I also encourage people to bring all of their personal anecdotes and their personal baggage to the process. Again, I, I think it's what makes it human and what, it's what keeps it fresh because no two people have the exact same experience, but finding where those experiences are similar and where they're divergent is where the real craft of writing is. 
lastly, before you go, uh, in, in the spirit of making history and thinking about Mr. Carey at Santa Monica High School, you recently were awarded the highest honor by the WGA, as I understand it, the Patty Chayefsky Laurel Award, awarded by your peers. Uh, mm. I was so excited uh, because I know you to, to see that you had won that award and all of us at Harvard Westlake were really proud. What did that mean to you? I mean, that acknowledgement, you know, the nod from my peers is incredibly affirming. Being the only woman of color whose work is Black-centered to receive this award, it definitely represents an expansion of what it looks like to be excellent. I'm only the second Black person to receive such an award. And, you know, the truth is accomplishments and meaningful contributions come in all colors, shapes, sizes, genders, and ages. So it was really quite quite affirming. And I feel like if you do something long enough and well enough, you just might receive such a prestigious honor <laughs> that bears the name of the very, very brilliant and revered Patty Chayefsky. Yeah. So it was quite an honor. Well, before we go, Yvette, there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to LA where you live now and where you actually went to high school and grew up for a part of your life. The first question, we are known as a city uh, for our movies for our food and for our climate. So the first question is, what is Yvette Lee Bowser's favorite movie? Has to be just one? That's a tough one. In no particular order. Thelma and Louise, Waiting to Exhale, Do the Right Thing, The Godfather, and The Way We Were. What's your favorite meal in LA? It could be a favorite restaurant. It could be something that your family makes at home. My favorite meal, my favorite food item is going to be the garlic noodle at Crustacean in Beverly Hills. Okay, that's good. I like the specific. On family recipe. <laughs> Thirdly, what's your favorite place in LA? Could be a part of town or a street? That's a tough one. My favorite place in LA is wherever my family is. And that could be at home watching a movie. We don't get to the beach often enough. Whenever we go to dinner at the beach, we're like, why don't we spend more time at the beach? We live in Southern California. Yeah. Why don't we go to the beach? But whenever we can get away to a beach resort or you know, just, a, you know, just the, the shore here in Los Angeles, it always creates a, a beautiful memory. Last question. I am the parent of two little girls. So I have an almost two-year-old and a four-and-a-half-year-old. I know you are a parent. In fact, you mentioned Ted Walsh. I remember at the Ted Walsh event, my wife and I were hanging with you and your son. True, Bowser. And I'm going to compliment you. You're going to hate. I'm sure you're going to hate this, but uh, we walked away, and my wife was like, "That young man was like one of the nicest men I've ever met." And you know, of all the Harvard Westlake students, now he's at Stanford. He's probably going to play Major League Baseball at some point soon. He's a talented kid on many fronts. But the last question I ask uh, every guest is for parenting advice. I obviously have little ones. You have one in college and one out of college. What would be your advice to me as the parent of two little ones thinking about how I can help to create kids as kind and friendly as your son was at the Ted Walsh event? I'm not sure if I have the formula for how to create kids as kind as my two are, <laughs> but savor every stage of the journey. Each stage is really, really special and it goes by so, so quickly that you just want to savor in it. You just want to savor it and, and marinate in it. And um, I think the other thing that I learned very early on with both of my boys is that our kids are not us. And so we should not use ourselves as measuring sticks for 
who our children are or who they're going to become. We need to let them find out who they are and how they want to be in the world. We need to give them space for that. It's really important. I see a lot of parents try to like shoehorn their kids into a shoe that just doesn't fit and put them on a path that's just not organic and comfortable to who they are. My mom really wanted me to be a lawyer and I've become a very successful and contributing human being with a very divergent path. So let them find their way. Be sure to like the path, but let them find their way. Yvette, that is great advice. And uh, thank you so much for making the time, taking a pause from the picket line and everything else you're doing to, uh, to join the supporting cast. Thank you so much for having me. 